no, 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 este se llama Panamá está bueno y más, más sin ese, más sin ese. Ma. Oye, la bocina está para este lado, túmbala. John Amison. I want to welcome you to the next podcast in a series of podcasts presented for you by the Psychologist Association of Alberta. Purpose of the podcast is to present information as timely, topical, <clears throat> and even controversial to the membership. Uh, I led in with uh, uh, this particular song for two reasons. One, I want to talk today about a really interesting article that was in the Journal of Theoretical and Philosophical Psychology. It's a it's a cool journal because it always um messes around the edges. It has a qualitative and um, theoretical sort of uh, posture. And it was talking, the title of the article is called Cultural Pragmatism, Pragmatism in Search of Alternative Thinking about Cultural Competence in Mental Health. Now, the other reason I picked this song as a lead-in is uh, I lived in Panama. I was in the Peace Corps uh, a billion years ago. Uh, I was in, uh, I was, I, 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 my place was in Panama, and and then uh, there was a some war. The United States was I was an American citizen at that time, and there was some war that the U.S. was involved in, and we protested that war, and they uh, sent us home. So there's a whole story there as well, but that's not what the podcast uh, should be about. So I'll lead in with some cross-cultural music, Panamanian music, and then an article entitled Cultural Pragmatism in Search of Alternative Thinking about Cultural Competence in Mental Health. Initially, it is important to speak to the foundational sense of cultural competence. Uh, psychology, uh, when we're learning it and when we think about what it's about, has certain foundational principles uh, that are common uh, to all psychologists, and we ought to be competent in all of those uh, areas. And one of them that has been added over the last 10 or 15 years is this idea of cultural competence, that is, understanding uh, the, the biases, uh, gaps, uh, the groups, uh, cultural groups that exist, um, and then the, the uh, way that, that particular cultures will affect their approach, the individuals, the patients' approach to mental health. There have been two basic approaches to uh, to um, in undertaking cultural competence. Uh, the first one is acquisition of culturally tailored skills. This skills model is an emphasis upon cultural awareness that relates to uh, the the behaviors of specific cultural groups, the thoughts, behaviors, and the cultural, um, um, I'm going to use the cultural cocoon that uh, is found in particular cultural groups. This first approach 
can can relate to language, uh, to understanding the certain habits that are associated with the culture, and even uh, especially to appreciate what mental health or uh, are, are the driving force that would have brought them uh, to therapy would be about. And that touches on the second approach. And the second approach is a cultural process model. And this is emphasis less on these foundational, instrumental, and essentialist qualities uh, that relate to a particular culture, uh, and looks more at a process. And it's a dynamic uh, sense of what occurs between the patient and the clinician. And central to that is uh, uh, cultural humility, um, looking at shifting the lens between the patient and the provider and, um, uh, you know, uh, em emphasizing, of course, the responsibility of the provider. Uh, but what do we need to understand here to create a relationship uh, and that, uh, that embodies an understanding of the fluidity, the intersectionality, and the lived experience of the cultural worldviews and how, how that exists. Now, let's let's use an example, and this comes from my own practice, uh, you know, 20, 20, 25 years ago. And <clears throat> working with First Nations people, many times uh, the practitioner tries to understand a little bit about the habits of a particular um, a, a particular nation uh, and understanding the sacred sacredness of, of, of symbols and uh, things like uh, you know a, a sweet grass burning sweet grass pipe ceremonies sweats these these features right and so that would be the the first approach a culturally acquisition of particular cultural skills However, the second one is the dynamic interaction with the individual. And the example I like to use is that this is, goes back 20, 25 years, I already said, that I would work with First Nations groups, uh, individuals, patients, and families, and, and they might be fundamentalist Christian. In other words, uh, Pentecostal and evangelical Christianity was uh, much touching on reserves and still does to this day. And so you might have some folks come in and you think, oh, they're First Nations, so I should understand blah, 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 all the stuff that I just said. And they might actually see those elements of their culture as a, a satanic, diabolic. In other words, the Christian faith, uh, especially the more fundamentalist, stuff would say that these are um, associated more with, um, uh, I don't want to say sin, but the idea that that's off track, that the only true path is through the, the Christian fellowship with, with Christ, and these other things would be deviants, all right? So that's how the two kind of can, can, can merge, or there can be trouble if, if one is too essentialist um, uh, and not enough dynamic. A central premise of the article is that we have to be very careful and not believe that there is some um, way that these two can be merged and that um, there's an objective cultural competence that can lead to what we call culture-free psychology. In other words, that psychology uh, can have a perspective on the distress and the presenting circumstances that then uh, transcends uh, the cultural um cultural aspects uh, that would relate to the presentation of a, of a particular patient. And, and that, that cultural aspect can also relate to uh, the, the culture of, say, the military or peace officers uh, and, and um, agents of social control. It can relate to um, 
uh, again, I've already raised this to fundamentalist uh, religion. Um, I've had folks come in that are very, very religious, and I'm, I, I'm not making fun of their religion when they, they talk to me about that and they start talking about psychology being associated with, you know, the dark side or could be associated. And I say, well, I don't really know about that, but I don't mind. Would you pray for, for your therapy and, and pray for me? And I, I'm, I'm a man, not a man of spirit. Uh, I'm not a theist. So, so I, 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 well, I don't have a faith, a faith base, uh, <clears throat> but I would say to them, um, well, I, I'm not a man of spirit, but if you would, you know, pray for us today, and I don't mind that. In other words, trying to appreciate that particular cultural artifact that they're bringing in that defines the way that they are in the world. Part of the article that reached out and grabbed me was the importation of a pragmatic emphasis into the work being done. And um, pragmatism basically says... Um, <clears throat> truth is the compliment we pay to ideas that serve some purpose, that get some work done. And psychology is always in danger of saying, we believe there is, there are particular ways to do things. And we have a whole history of what we call formal conceptualization and formal diagnosis. This is even when we're in a treatment mode. We're saying, oh yes, this is um, an anxiety disorder, here's a specific way we go about treating that. And uh, uh, pragmatism would have no argument with that as long as it earned its keep. Uh, that, that is, it was able to produce some kinds of results. And we would call <clears throat> this uh, the formal diagnostic, formal conceptualization of a matter. And I've always joked and I've said, it's an occult language and a way of looking at things that we can share with each other or with insurance companies that require that for reimbursement. However, the second part, and this is a very pragmatic part, is operational I say consideration. So there's formal diagnosis and operational diagnosis. And uh, this is part of, jumps out in the article. Um, they, they talk about how do we... Um, take what we know to be more true, and how do we apply that in a sense uh, that, it, that it produces some results? In other words, as I've already said, earns its keep. <clears throat> so this part of the article is the part that uh, really led to me wanting to do this podcast. And the pragmatic orientation to culture is the concept of intersectionality, uh, so that the large classifications that we often impose, uh, 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 this is U.S., of course, American Indian, Asian, Black, Afro-American, Pacific Islander, or White, these large categories uh, uh, fail to provide us with very much without the, one, pragma pragmatic approach, and then the concept of intersectionality. That means there's um, a term that's been introduced in the literature is hype diversity, the interconnectedness multiplying uh, occurring in cultural different cultural categories. So that um, I, I did a presentation in Norway a few years ago at the European Congress of Psychology, and I started off by listing um, single parent, first nation mother, two children living in subsidized housing. And, and I just started with that. Now, in Norway, that was a little, a little more difficult for them to appreciate. But when we say that, we, as psychologists, begin to create. Um, and then it said, uh, previously um, married to um, the dean, 
uh, previously married to full professor in the faculty of medicine at, at the university. Oh, and then I said, uh, 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 feminist scholar, also dean of cross-cultural studies at the same university. See, um, and then I said, speaks three languages, and then kept adding pieces to this intersectionality, and um, recently um, has accepted um, affection for same sex. So what we were trying to create there was a conglomeration of elements. Each one has a certain definition in our head and kind of grabs us. And the last one I, I said was, and has, this was during George, and has uh, uh, worked on the George W. Bush uh, political campaign um, and, and votes Republican. So that all of a sudden, all of these things kind of go into a funny tumble. Uh, and, and, and that, that is the, um, the essence of this um, hyper-diversity and then uh, cross-cultural um, intersectionality. You see, uh, it, it, uh, there's a line here, it's really good. The inherent complexity of, of culture then shatters even the, co the capacity to talk usefully about culture. And, and, and then this leads us into their principles, the principles that they say ought to guide a pragmatic. Yeah, I'm sorry, jumping back in, uh, there was, I had a phone call, and so I got myself off, off pace here. Um, all right, so the, the, the first thing that they say in this is identif identify what the patient holds to be true about the illness. So I've always said to my interns, and I practice it this way, it's more important what the patient believes. So, so you say, so what's your theory about this? Why do you think you're sad, mad, you know, scared, whatever, you know? What's your theory? And then listen to their theory about it, right? And then incorporate their theory. The model I have used is a restaurant. I think you guys who've listened to the podcast have heard me speak about this. Uh, I was raised in a restaurant family. My dad was ran restaurants and bars in LA. And so I always think of when people come in, they're coming in to order a, a, a meal. Now, if we go to a, I'm trying to think of an exotic one, a Tibetan restaurant or um, uh, uh, Eritrean uh, restaurant, right? We may not know what's on the menu. We may have no idea, see? So what we have to talk about is say, well, you know, to them, so, and this is them coming to therapy. So if you say, well, what's your theory about this? They go, well, I don't really know. Say, then you can ex expand that conversation and, and look at a collaborative way, a collaborative way to identify something that is solvable. How do we define a problem so we can solve it? Uh, there's the old chestnut from Jay Haley in Strategic Therapy where the, he asks the student, so what's going on with your family? And he says, well, the, the child and the mother are uh, enmeshed so that there's a few, an ego fusion so that one cannot be oneself without the other. And Haley said to them, oh, I wouldn't try to solve that problem. And what he meant was define the problem in a way that, that will assist the operational conceptualization and diagnosis. The second principle in this is looking at the function and relevance that the definition of the problem provides for the patient. That is, what is their truth about this? Why would they see it this way? So instead of debating, 
No, uh, what you're saying is wrong. What I have is right. In other words, I understand. I'm the expert in a medical model. I'll tell you what you have uh, to, to ask, you know, ask them what they think. And then what is the function of that way of seeing it and incorporating that function into the, into the uh, uh, actual model, actual dynamic aspects of treatment, the operationalization of treatment. Then they suggest that we look very closely at the importance of their concerns and the relevant cultural contaminants, quote, the, the cultural issues that can be around it. And I'll, I'll use um, a, uh, a couple of examples. Um, you, if you're working with uh, a, a distinct population and parameters around them have to do with poverty, uh, uh, poverty or marginalization, then that cultural dynamic of marginalization will perhaps define, <laughs> this is so cute, uh, can you guys hear? I'm going to stop it and then I'll um, uh, get back. I, I, I just want to impress you guys. That was another phone call. So uh, I'm um, not a man without uh, social contacts and professional contacts um, on an ongoing basis. Um, uh, that said, we're looking at the the <clears throat> the predispositions that would be associated with a culture. And one of the ways to think about this uh, when people come in, what is their confidence in professionals? What are their expectations around professionals based upon the circumstances uh, that have arisen uh, in the culture in which they are uh, embedded? And I, there's three ways you can think of it. Uh, there can be deference, distance or disdain. So, so um, uh, deference is, certain cultures would be very differential to, uh, to professionals, uh, very differential to people who have titles. Uh, they may be more receptive to the input uh, as long as that input would be very consistent and very respectful of what that culture is about. Uh, the second is, of course, distance. And distance can just be, um, I have uh, been marginalized to some extent in the culture, or I am led, my truth is uh, only people who would be weak would come in uh, to get this kind of uh, attention. And so that, that distancing. And then the third can be disdain. And, and you can work with populations where they have no expectation of any benefit that comes out of interactions with professionals because that has been a disappointing factor all through their cultural um, uh, indoctrination, so to speak. Um, I worked with a uh, uh, South African, uh, uh, the, the designation would have been colored, and they were um, uh, between distance and disdainful because their interactions with authority in South Africa had been horrendous. They had had to leave South Africa because their their husband had been a member of the um, African National Congress. That was the Nelson Mandela's movement. And that had been associated with communism and also with uh, violence. And so she, uh, she had had to flee. And so any trust in, in institutions of the state, so to speak, uh, was, was very much lowered. So uh, distance and disdain. Uh, uh, again, this leads to a, a central feature, which we all know is um, uh, uh, humility, cultural humility. Uh, we, we, we must take what we know, best clinical practices, that is ways to develop relationship and the main themes associated with certain kinds of problems, and then apply that. 
and uh, but not in a colonial sense, uh, not in the sense of well, let me let me um, lift you up and educate you on how you need to see the world, but to be culturally very humble and then negotiate. And they use the term over and over and over um, collaboration, aiding the patient through clinical choices and shared decision making, and addressing those environmental forces that um, are barriers or that impinge upon those kinds of choices. And it can be everything, as I say, from the, you know, uh, deference, distance, and disdain. Uh, there are Southeast Asian cultures that would be very differential, but they're shrewd consumers of our stuff. They're going, yes, yes, the best way to make this work is to be very, very differential. But that doesn't mean I'm taking his stuff home and applying it in my daily life. All right. It says to always find ways uh, to situate uh, situate your interventions in a, a patient-based narrative, a patient-based languaging. This doesn't mean um, I, I, I speak Spanish and I, I do clinical work in Spanish. It was really cute because when I first came to Alberta and I put down, I spoke Spanish, uh, the Chilean folks were here. And at one of the first uh, large gatherings under the Psychology Psych Association of Alberta, this guy comes up to me and he just hits me with this long line of Spanish. I understood every word and responded and he just started busting up. And he said, you really do speak Spanish. Yeah, so, so the idea is, yeah, language could be in the native language, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. It means their narrative in a patient language is a kind of a epistemological anchor grounded in their worldview and guard against becoming, um, you know, uh, competitive with our worldview versus versus theirs. So, so um, this humility and then act, asking for feedback and correctiveness. And uh, even, even when we use language, um, I'll give another example. I was working with a, a blue collar uh, a Lebanese uh, situation and uh, the, the person was talking about their, their, his significant other uh, girlfriend, and, and I said, uh, oh, I said, it sounds like a, a jinn, D-J-I-N-N. And he went, yes, exactly. A jinn is, an, is a, like genie. The word genie comes from this word, the jinn. Uh, I'm not quite sure I'm pronouncing it right. Please forgive me if there are Arabic speakers listening. But it means kind of a spirit, see? And, and, and many times we can think of problems that people have as being kind of, kind of displaced, and I want to use the word in a non-metaphysical sense, possessed by fear and doubt, by anger and resentment, by sadness. So using being able to talk that way with him, not... not not being in agreement that there was actually a spirit that was possessing his girlfriend, but this, this metaphor was very, very useful in proceeding with the treatment. All right, so so um, hang on a second, I'm gonna find some music, but also I'm gonna try to do some concluding remarks. I can just read, this is a lovely closing that's from the article. Uh, I'll read it to you. At its core then, the cultural competence proposed in this article of asked clinicians to question the authority of clinical knowledge, cautioning against viewing it as factual and acultural, and instead considering it as an expression of, of what works, at least what has worked in the clinical sphere, and a cultural expression in and of itself. All right, so uh, there we are. And uh, I'll let this uh, uh, Nushrat Fatali Khan uh, take us out. <laughs>